It's Thursday, December 1st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On the show today, in our polarized country, it's hard to agree on almost anything, except maybe this one fact that centrism sucks. Now, I don't think it sucks. I think there is a robust centrism and a default centrism. The default is something like, well, I'll just take the average of however the extremes define themselves, and you're not really making a choice or committing to anything. But there is a robust centrism, an idea, an embrace of the idea that in a pluralist society, what we have to do to get along is to try to see the other side's opinion and try to forcefully pursue solutions, something like that, and also acknowledge that the solutions aren't always going to satisfy your side tremendously. This isn't the only way forward. Another way forward is for one side or the other to totally dominate. That is not going on in the United States. No matter what happens, if you look at the midterms, we have parity in our electoral system. So what can we do? I say maybe think a little more about centrism, and I've been thinking about it with Senator Joe Lieberman, the former Connecticut senator and vice presidential nominee. And I talked a little while ago. I wanted to bring you that entire conversation in two parts. It's the whole show. So up next, Senator Joe Lieberman. Many things on his resume, but this one shall be the author of The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. Joe Lieberman, as you might know, served as United States Senator from Connecticut from 1989 to 2013. He was the nominee for vice president of the United States in the 2000 election. He is out with a book, which is at least his eighth. It is called The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Again. I should note one of his previous books is something called The Scorpion and the Tarantula. I won't tell you, the subtitle makes it sound less exciting than it is. It's about controlling atomic weapons. But Senator Lieberman, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. I know you have a good sense of humor. I will tell you that once uh, the book, I I won't go into why I called it the scorpion and the tarantula, but once I was introduced to an audience as the author of a book called The Scorpion and the Tarantella. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Spanish folk dancing of Senator (laughs) Joe Lieberman. I'd sign up for that. Yeah. So, So, you know, Centrist. This is a label that could apply to, generally speaking, me and my political outlook. I prefer moderate. You talk about in the book why you don't. I think neither them of them is terribly sexy or really terribly descriptive. But what is, I'm, and in a nutshell, my problem with centrist is you're not defining yourself. You're just defining as the median between opposing views. And if those opposing views get crazy, then you will have to go along with some of the crazy if you just look at the strict definition of centrist. So why does it appeal to you? Why is is it a label you're looking to champion? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. And um, I, I chose the word centrist just for the reason uh, you've uh, stated in your question. Uh, centrism is not a, uh, a political philosophy. 
it's really a strategy. Uh, and I, I distinguish it from uh, being a moderate. A, a moderate uh, really is a, a kind of political philosophy. You're independent-minded. You choose between left, right, etc. To me, centrism uh, is, a, is about a process and, as I said, a strategy. And it means that you're willing to come to the center uh, in this democracy to, to essentially meet with people who have different points of view. They may have come to the center from the left, right, or moderate, independent, left, Republican, Democrat. But you're coming to talk about a particular problem, issue, challenge, opportunity, and you're willing to sit down and discuss, negotiate, compromise, and get something done. Centrism uh, is the way that uh, American government has achieved the, the biggest and sometimes the smallest, but not insignificant things it ever achieves, because rarely can people on one end of the ideological spectrum or one party uh, get enough votes in Congress to get something done. Doesn't centrism depend on the system being functional? You wouldn't want to be a centrist in, well, 1868 and Andrew Johnson's president. I'd want to be a radical Republican, what was called a radical Republican. Yeah, it does uh, depend on the system functioning. And it's part of why, actually, I wrote the book, because uh, in our time, with some exceptions, um, the, the parties have pulled so far apart uh, and they've been pulled apart and people are, are, are in office are pulled apart that uh, the system is not really working. And therefore, uh, it seems increasingly hard to get enough people to come to the center to discuss the public interest, the national interest, that, that they're just not getting much done. And incidentally, the, lately, there has been a series of exceptions to that. Um, and, but and for instance, the bipartisan infrastructure reform bill, the so-called gun safety bill, although the big bill just passed, which I thought was a good bill and was uh, the result of a lot of negotiation and compromise, which was the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, cl climate change, particularly some good healthcare stuff, but it passed only with Democratic votes. Uh, and, that, and that's really unfortunate. But ironically, it also was an exercise in centrism, as was um, uh, widely uh, discussed and covered, because uh, particularly in the Senate, the, the Democrats had to convince um, uh, a couple of people, at least, who were moderates in just the way, Mike, you said at the beginning, uh, particularly Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, uh, that uh, th they would support this proposal. And to do so, they had to make uh, had to negotiate and compromise. So sidestepping the labels, if I had to analyze, was that an exercise in compromise? It was, but was it uh, an exercise in improving the bill because Joe Manchin and then maybe later Cinema was able to exert their position? In other words, should we, should we celebrate that centrism showed itself in that Joe Manchin got a lot of uh, benefits for his state, which I understand senators do. Should we celebrate the fact that, well, good thing centrist Joe Manchin was involved, or if Joe Manchin were from another state other than West Virginia and had different inclinations, should we say, well, that's good. We got a, a much better, stronger bill on such important issues as the environment. Really good point, because uh, there is a certain uh, pragmatic uh, center to the idea 
of centrism, which is it's a way to get things done. Whether it improves, I mean, and that's important because if you're if you're doing nothing to solve a problem or take advantage of an opportunity, uh, that's the worst situation. But very often to get something done to solve a problem, you've got to compromise and you may have to compromise in a way that you think makes the bill less than it should be, but more than it would be if nothing passed. So, uh, you know, I was involved in the Obamacare legislation and uh, we had 60 Democrats then in the Senate, which was very unusual to have 60 of either party. Uh, but there was a range of opinions, and um, uh, we had to break the filibuster with 60 votes. And so there was some good old-fashioned horse trading that went on. I was part of it because I didn't like the so-called public option at the time. But a few of my colleagues and friends, uh, Ben Nelson and uh, Mary Landrew from Louisiana, Ben Nelson from Nebraska, so I, I'm trying to remember what they called it, what Ben got something called the Cornhusker something or other. It was kickback. Kickback, right. Corn, oh, very yes. good. My Cornhusker kickback. <laughs> and then Mary Landrew, they called it the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> and uh, look, Joe Manchin got uh, some significant uh, sort of public works projects and uh, uh, in business uh, economic incentive projects for West Virginia. Uh, can I say that they improved the bill? Not necessarily, but they enabled, they got his vote and that got something really important done to me because I, I spent a lot of time trying to adopt uh, climate change legislation when I was in the Senate. It, 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 this is really the most significant step forward by our government to do something about climate change ever. And so it was worth the compromise. Yeah, I would say the centrism or the openness to compromise was exhibited by uh, 48 other senators, and it was Manchin and Cinema who forced them into that position. So, you know, maybe if this were the House or there were some dynamics where there are people who, I mean, there are people in the House, six, I think six members didn't even vote for the infrastructure bill out of a fit of peak over the order it was introduced. Right. So, yeah. So I don't know that uh, Joe Manchin is a, uh, is, is a poster child for uh, profiles and centrism. Maybe he forced everyone else to be. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, and incidentally, this creates um, resentment. I remember during the um, Obamacare debate, uh, 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 there were people in the Democratic caucus who were very upset about Senate caucus very upset about the compromises that the Obama White House and uh, Harry Reid as majority leader were making. And Harry, at one point, uh, called a caucus and said, I know a lot of you are upset about the changes we've made, but uh, we, we can't get any health care reform done unless we have the support of every member of this caucus. So please understand that, and in a way, I'm sure that there were, I know, because they said it, there were members of the Democratic caucus in the House and Senate who didn't like some of the changes that were put into the new legislation or response to demands by Manchin and Cinema. But in the end, uh, they supported it because uh, it, it was much, it, it was a bigger step forward uh, than a lot of them thought was possible. Second ago, you said, I didn't support the public option then. Have you changed your mind about it? Um, yeah, well, 
in I'm, I haven't changed my mind on the big question of um, whether essentially I thought people promoting the public option and were really hoping to have the government take over uh, healthcare generally. And, and I think we have a system. Incidentally, it became pretty clear in some of the uh, presidential primaries in recent years that uh, you know there's like 175, 180 million people who get their health care through their employer, and generally speaking, they're they're happy with it and they don't want it to be switched over. So I think the mixed system we have is pretty good. Ken, some of the uh, uh, changes in uh, the healthcare system that are in the new bill, which basically uh, subsidized premium payments uh, for um, uh, people who have less income, I think are quite positive. They don't uh, move toward a full public option as it was described then, but um, I, I think they're uh, constructive. And I also think the cap, uh, the ability to negotiate uh, pharmaceutical prices, prescription drug prices for uh, Medicare is really an important step forward. So those are steps in which the government is more involved in the healthcare system, uh, but um, uh, not a full government takeover of healthcare. And incidentally, I thought, and there was a way in which I thought maybe people in the White House did, uh, the Obama White House, that what was being accomplished was so significant. I mean, people, presidents have been trying to uh, adopt healthcare reform since Truman, you know, in the 40s. And uh, President Obama saw that he had a chance to do it. And frankly, uh, I think in their heart of hearts, they didn't want to load up uh, the bill uh, too much with the so-called public option or national health insurance. Right. So I remember at the time your complaint was, uh, your point was mostly budgetary, even though the uh, CEO yeah. squirted yeah. and said, Right. There, there was there were there were smart people who said actually it wouldn't be, it it wouldn't have an effect on the deficit. But putting that aside, there's also a complaint about we need this bill to pass and to be popular. Some people would say, well, once it passes and people see it in their lives, it will be popular. That proved a little sanguine. So then you could argue, okay, this will be another mm, target on it, and people will criticize it and it will overall make it less popular. Let's not take this huge step. Let's go in more of a baby step. And so I'll credit all that. I don't want to get into like the debate of 2009. But my question is, in the 13 years since, do you think that America, it has, Obamacare has not become popular among the right, but popular enough so that even red states are implementing it within their states to see how far we've come. At this point, if you were in the Senate and some flat out version of a public option as was proposed in 2009 was on the table would you be a yes vote for it now probably not uh, for the reason i said that i think the mixed system we have uh with a lot with 170 80 million people getting their insurance from their employers and and by every indication polling and everything else they like it uh it's sort of why um uh the Biden administration and the can the Democratic candidates for president, with a couple, of, maybe Bernie as an exception, uh, didn't advocate a, a full public option type uh, proposal because it's not ultimately popular. But I will say on the other side of this that um, Obamacare has become a part, a fixed part of of American life. And people depend on it and have benefited from it 
And um, ultimately, uh, it, it, it has withstood some real challenges, in part challenges because it was adopted by members of only one party, but that's because the members of the other party wouldn't uh, join the dance or come on the dance floor. Um, and it's and it survived two uh, uh, Supreme Court challenges as well. So uh, Obamacare is a, is now, in my opinion, a permanent part of our uh, system of life here, and uh, to the better. So uh, if you ask me about how do I feel about my vote for somebody would say to me, "Oh, you 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 know, and not liking Obamacare, you made it possible." I say, yeah, I did, and I'm proud of that. A couple minutes ago, I said I, I used 1866 or so and Andrew Johnson and not wanting to be centrist because for a number of reasons, but there were more clearly right or wrong uh, um, um, parameters of public life. And also there are some I- issues you just don't want to be centrist on. Um is 2022 a similar time? I mean, I know the book came out last year and it was probably you were contemplating it for a while. But do you look at the current political system and see not just the spirit of compromise, but actually working with a Senate where there were zero votes for the most important climate legislation from the Republican side? Do you see it as a chance where centrism really can work? Great question. Um so we've become so divided, and I don't, don't need to spend any time uh, proving my point, but uh, for all the reasons that every, everybody knows, it is quite remarkable, as I said briefly at the outset of our conversation, like that a number of um, bipartisan proposals have made it through this first uh, year and a half, two years of the Biden administration. Um, some of it, I'm proud to say, from the bipartisan caucuses that were encouraged um, by No Labels, which is a group that I'm proud to uh, co-chair, which encourages centrism and the election of moderate or centrist Republicans and Democrats to Congress. But I'm talking about the infrastructure reform bill, the gun safety bill, uh, and um, the climate change bill. I I do want to say briefly that I, I got concerned about climate change in the 90s, and I wanted to, and I worked with Al Gore, but he was then vice president, of course, and I wanted to try to do something about it. And uh, I, I always looked for and always found a good Republican co-sponsor with John Chafee, John McCain, uh, John Warner, Lindsey Graham. But and we and I think we introduced some good compromise bipartisan legislation, but. None of it ever passed. I worked in it for more than a dozen years. And why didn't it pass? Uh, We got almost every Democratic vote in the Senate, and we got almost no Republican votes. And that has continued, notwithstanding the fact that the reality of climate change is so so evident. At the beginning, we were talking about modeling, scientific modeling. Now you can see it. You can feel it every day. And uh, the Republicans have to get off of this. I mean, they've got to start to think of climate change. And if I can make a comparison uh, to uh, uh, what we did legislatively post 9-11, everybody was so traumatized by that, that um, we adopted the Department of Homeland Security, the 9-11 Commission Report, reformed our intelligence agencies. 
there were a lot of disputes along the way about those bills, but almost none of them were partisan, and we worked them out in the center. And uh, and the whole reason was we were trying to, uh, to create a change that would guarantee as best we could that there would never be another terrorist attack on the U.S. like 9-11, and there wasn't. And honestly, the Republicans have to wake up and say today, because I believe this, that uh, climate change is today a greater threat even than terrorism was after 9-11 to our country and to the world. So let us hold it right there for a moment. We shall take a break and then return with Senator Joe Lieberman. We'll talk more about the politics of today and some of the key events in his life and key political stances that he took and maybe would take again or maybe not. Stay tuned. The 9-11 Commission was formed by esteemed former elected officials and experts, Jamie Gorelick, for instance, who's, who was mentioned in your book, who is, by the way, an- anathemized for having any business with Trump, even though it's pretty clear that she's a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. Now, this, this January 6th committee is by current members of the House, and Republicans could have served on it, but they essentially vetoed it. Do you think it was a mistake to constitute the committee with current House members? And then the second question is, if you think it was okay for Nancy Pelosi to go ahead with that, once the Republicans withdrew, what's the centrist solution on how to conduct that committee? Yeah, uh, great questions again. So uh, uh, John McCain and I... Uh, uh, worked on the 9-11 commission bill. We introduced the legislation. And we did because we saw two things happening uh, after 9-11. The Bush administration wanted to investigate itself what happened. And it was being defensive because it was wor- worried that the, they were going to be blamed for 9-11. Congress, uh, which was Democratic at that point, started to, uh, through committees, investigate. And, and it was beginning to look partisan to try to blame it. On Bush and John and I thought you know, we needed an independent, nonpartisan commission. It wasn't easy to get, and in the end, we got it because the families uh, who were survivors who lost people on 9/11 really lobbied very effectively for it. So when uh, January 6th happened, I brought that experience to it, and I thought very strongly there ought to be an independent, uh, nonpartisan uh, commission set up outside of Congress. Okay, that wasn't to be. Uh, then all the problems occurred with um, the nominee, whether, what Republicans would be on the congressional uh, committee or, or commission. Uh, but I must tell you, uh, I think that though it hasn't been truly bipartisan, we've had Congresswoman Cheney, Congresswoman Kensinger on there, uh, that, that committee has done a first-rate job. It's just a professional job in laying out the, uh, the case here. And, and I believe it's affected uh, public opinion and public understanding of how extreme uh, the, the behavior was of the people who attacked our capital on January 6th. Okay. So a centrist, or at least the centrist I'm talking to right now would say, we wanted it to be bipartisan. The, there, there are only two Republicans on the committee. It was a rejection by the Republicans. We're going ahead. We're not letting sort of the heckler's veto to take hold with this committee. And that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I couldn't say this is 
uh, this committee on uh, January 6th is really centrist um, or bipartisan, but uh, I think it's it's doing a first-rate, honorable uh, a job at this, and and they've served the public interest. So okay, you didn't it didn't didn't work out the way I hoped it would, but I think it's done its work in the national interest. As I'm reading the book, I see the names of the colleagues you worked with and the Republicans mentioned are, I mean, you mentioned a lot of Republicans and John McCain has big chapters, but Lincoln Chafee, George Mitchell, William Cohen, Alan Simpson, Bob Dole. These seem to be of a different quality than the Republicans in the Senate today. Or am I wrong? Um, uh, Bob Dole would definitely have been as Republican as he was then, as he is now. And Alan Simpson, I don't think in terms in terms of temperament, he was a different different kind of cat, but he was his his voting record was strongly Republican. But still, I see a different quality of personality. Do you see that? Yeah, I, I guess I'd start this way. And in my opinion, there are people, certainly Republicans in the Senate, who are every bit as capable and um, kind of interested, or at least came to the Senate, interested in getting something done. And they know that you got to work across party lines to get something done. Um, but um, they get divided by the process and by this, uh, by the money in politics, by the interest groups in politics, and they get, uh, and by the media, and they get uh, pulled uh, apart uh, but there is even something that, that that would be my pre-Trump answer to why it got harder to get uh, bipartisan things done. A lot of good people who came to the Senate wanting to do it and then get pulled apart. But now, after 2016 election and Trump's presidency, I mean, we've had essentially a takeover of the Republican Party by uh, Donald Trump, and uh, he's a very different kind of Republican. In some ways, he's not as conservative as some of the people you mentioned, like Bob Dole, but uh, he's also uh, much more partisan. And of course, he has all the other uh, sort of non-issue stuff that's part of his personality. Nonetheless, as we see from the uh, primaries that are going on now in the Republican Party, uh, by and large, not all, every time, but most times, the Trump-endorsed candidate seems to win. So, And if you ask people on a poll, who do they want to be, uh, Republicans, who, who do they want to be the Republican nominee, who will they support? Next time, Trump wins by a lot. So I know his numbers are going down a little bit, but he's still the dominant figure in uh, the Republican Party. And so long as that is true, it'll be harder uh, for there to be centrist accomplishments in Congress, because he's totally focused, in my opinion, on uh, vindicating what he thinks, apparently, was the unfair result of the uh, 2020 election. I know by the end you weren't running as a Democrat. If you were a younger man with these uh, issue opinions and also analysis of politics, would you run as a Democrat today? Another great question. With all the questions I've been asked over time, I don't think anybody's asked me that before. Uh, so, um, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd run as an independent. But uh, I got to be honest, I got elected to the Senate in 2006 after I lost the Democratic Party. 
as an independent. But that was a unique circumstance where, um, you know, I was the incumbent senator. I had a lot of visibility. Uh, there was a sense in some people in Connecticut that I had been unfairly denied uh, renomination by the Democrats. So uh, I got reelected as an independent. And I would have to say, and I try to be practical and honest with you here, that if I was starting out now, uh, I might feel most comfortable running as an independent. But the odds of getting elected as an independent, as a young person starting out in politics, uh, not in the normal course where that happens. So I would probably, to answer your question, uh, be an a Democrat and try my, I, I'd be a, a, a centrist or a moderate, independent-minded Democrat, and I'd hope that I could win that way. There is, I, you know, I, I can't assess how genuine the momentum is behind it, but there is an, a new third party, Christy Todd Whitman, Andrew Yang, called the Forward Party, and there were some other third parties who you might have been loosely affiliated with. There's the Renew America movement, and then there's Sam. I know you work with No Labels, but do you think that, give me your political analysis. Is there any possibility that a third party, especially this seems to be a center party, has success and improves America? Yeah. Listen, I want to add one word to my answer to your last question. I, I never changed my personal registration from the Democratic Party. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you were elected on the party line of a party that you were not a member of. Yeah. I, I essentially created the line to run uh, in November in 2006. So um, uh, uh, if you look at American history and you went back to the the middle of the 19th century, I mean, you might say that the last time a third party uh, succeeded in a national election was Lincoln in 1860. Uh, then, incidentally, with a bipartisan ticket with the aforementioned Andrew Johnson in 1864, and then the Whigs disappeared. But uh, there hasn't been really a successful national third party run. Um, the um, uh, you know, the third party candidates that have affected the discussion and and government policy. And Ross Perot is the most recent one who actually did that. I think he, he give him some credit for uh, Bill Clinton uh, making the balanced budget act, uh, a balanced budget goal a priority and then actually getting it done in uh, 1997. So I, I you know, I know I will start by saying no labels has really been committed to trying to make the two-party system work by elect nominating electing uh, centrist Republicans and Democrats and then hoping they get together and really can get something done because we've always felt that the third party uh, really won't work here but I, I will tell you in my own personal opinion that um, as we approach 2024 if President Trump runs again and gets nominated, uh, and the Democratic Party goes too far to the left. I'm speaking simplistically here. There's going to be an opening for a third party that's probably bigger than than any maybe since 1860, and uh, but it's still difficult. So uh, Andrew Yang, I don't know well, but I respect what I know about him. Christy Todd Whitman, I know, and I have the greatest admiration and affection for her. And, and so I wish them well. They seem to be less focused on 2024 and really a long haul effort to build a third party in America from the bottom up. 
that's tough stuff. Uh, just the way it way it is. That's what our history tells us. But you know, we need it now. Maybe people are fed up enough with the two parties that they'll respond. And this wasn't in the book, but doing some research, and I vaguely remember this, you were a yes vote on Clarence Thomas until Anita Hill testified. And I was reading, I went back and read coverage of the time, and at least according to that, up until 15 minutes before the vote, you were unsure, and then you decided you had to vote against Clarence Thomas. And if our listeners want to go back, this wasn't... Yes, every Republican voted to confirm him, but there were also some Democrats, uh, Howell Heflin, who later became a Republican, things like that. Um, well, actually, I'm, I don't want to get that wrong. I don't know if Heflin ever became a Republican, but no, I'm thinking of Shelby. Okay, How, Howard Heflin, Southern, yeah, Howard Heflin, Southern Democrats, people like that. But tell me about that dynamic. I think we want to think that our senators can be swayed by evidence, but I haven't seen any evidence of that in a judicial confirmation uh, in years and years and years. Was that a special situation for you? I will say that I think history has proved that to be the correct vote. But was that unique and especially trying? And what can it say about how we confirm Supreme or how senators confirm and advise and consent on the nominee of Supreme Court justices? Yeah, I, I mean, that kind of thing, unfortunately, doesn't happen. Obviously, there have been cases recently where allegations almost similar to, somewhat similar to what the allegations against uh, Justice Thomas at that point have come up. And, uh, but it's all, it all ends up being part of almost a partisan sort of rock fight, mud fight uh, about nominees. Uh, of course, in, around that time, um, uh, I think certainly one before Scalia, one after, uh, a very conservative nominee, uh, uh, Antonin Scalia, and then a very liberal nominee, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both got more than 90 votes to be confirmed. It'd be un unheard of now. I learned a lot, and some of it painful, in the Clarence Thomas nomination. When I uh, he was first nominated, I met him. His patron in the Senate was Jack Danforth from Missouri, who was a wonderful person, honorable person. I believe Thomas may have worked for him at one point, and uh, that had a big effect on me. So uh, I, I decided I would vote for him, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I announced it. And then all that stuff came out about Anita Hill from Anita Hill, and it it's it shook me up. I mean, I I, I began to worry about who was Thomas. I uh, I will tell you this big lesson that I learned. I waited too long, and, and it was part of my uh, newness in the Senate to make up my mind. But I was um, uh, I was trying to figure out what's the right thing to do here, and. Uh, Actually, my mind was made up that day of the vote or the day before when uh, it seems simple, but what Robert C. Byrd, the senator from West Virginia, was on the floor and uh, he said, and this also doesn't really happen that much anymore. He said, normally with a presidential nominee uh, for the Supreme Court or, or any executive position, we give the nominee the benefit of the doubt if there are questions. But he said, here, this is a lifetime appointment. And we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the Supreme Court itself and to our system of law. And I thought, you know what? He's right. I got too many doubts. 
Um, I, I may be doing something unfair to Thomas, but I think I'm doing the right thing for the Supreme Court. And so I voted against them. And I, I never regretted it, of course. So in the book, you point out that you tried to convince Al Gore to essentially appeal uh, the Supreme Court decision. I listened to an excellent, well-done piece of journalism from uh, Leon Nafak called Fiasco, and they were talking about the issue of what was called the Heron Memo. There were ballots from overseas, including military ballots. Overseas absentee ballots were used by American citizens living abroad. In recent presidential elections, the state of Florida had received between 1,500 and 3,000 of them. In a normal election, that was not a lot of votes. But in 2000, when it became clear that overseas absentee ballots could determine the outcome of the race, they were thrust into the center of a bitter confrontation between the two campaigns. But you were on Meet the Press, and you said... My own point of view, if I was there, I would give the benefit of the doubt to ballots coming in uh, from military personnel generally, but uh, particularly in light of the letter and the kind of statements we've heard about that. But the... And there are quotes from Mark Herron and Nick Baldick, who were Gore advisors. They were appalled that you said this. They thought you were giving away the game about the military ballots. Looking back, I know that you thought it was an ethical thing to say in the moment, like we do need to count the military ballots. But given, given the stakes, given what happened afterwards with Bush getting elected, do you have any regrets or reconsideration of that moment? No, I don't. Um, and I was, uh, still, I had only vaguely heard about it before Tim, Tim Mercer asked me that morning. But my instinctive reaction was two things. One is part of our case in Florida, uh, apart from the chads and all that stuff, um, was that uh, in a number of uh, polling places, uh, people of color were being, on technicalities, were being denied the right to vote. And um, uh, so I thought, okay, this is like that. Uh, unless they could prove that there was actual fraud, in, uh, that, that it was a fake ballot. Uh, if, if somebody uh, somewhere around the world serving the US, in the US military made a technical mistake in filling out the ballot, I, I didn't think it was right for us to claim that uh, that ballot should not be counted. And part of it was a, a kind of intuitive uh, just respect and appreciation for what um, people do when they put on the uniform of the U.S. So I, I feel very strongly that I said the right thing. And I never, uh, maybe I should read that book, but I never uh, was convinced that there were enough votes really from the military to make a difference there. Well, Heron said... It was like I'd been kicked in the stomach. I was a quite, quite sick, so to speak. And at that point in time, uh, I had to leave the building and walk around Tallahassee for a while. I, I just couldn't believe what he had done. So I don't even know if you knew the extent to which the people who were trying to fight it were uh, gutted by that statement. I heard a little bit of that uh, afterward uh, from a guy named Ron Klein. Whatever happened to him? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. he was work, working in the campaign. He was very uh, upset about it. But um, I think I did the right thing. Senator Joseph I. Lieberman is the author of The Centrist Solution, How We Make Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. I enjoyed it a lot.
That's it for today's show. The gist is produced by Corey Wara, the AP, Joel Patterson, the SP, and Michelle Pesca, MP. She's CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. 